when golfers are playing really good, they don't have to think in any kind of pre-shot framework. And they and I try to help them not think when I call that a game golf or heater golf. Like when you're on that, there's a version of you you just need to let ride. This is the tournament code. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Phil. We know a little bit about your coaching. We've talked a little bit before we got on air about some of the students you're working with. But before we get into coaching, I know you kind of have a roundabout way into the world of golf. So tell us about how you got into golf and how you got here. Yeah, uh, I'll try to keep the story pretty short because it is a lot. Didn't grow up in golf. Basketball was my world. I grew up in Indiana. And uh, back in, in my day, man, that was everything. And I loved it. And I was pretty good at it. And came to golf in college. So didn't grow up in junior golf, didn't play college golf. Actually had a roommate in college who had played high school golf. And I was recovering from a pretty serious knee injury that I incurred from basketball. And I couldn't get back on to any other athletic stuff. So he's like, I bet you could play golf once you on your knees. So once you come play golf and that was my intro and I like a lot of people, I just, I'm a very, I can be a very obsessive person once I fall in love with something. And so I just went really hard uh, on the golf world and, you know, that was a long, long time ago now. So just pushed it as far as I could played a little bit competitively and am stuff and got, got pretty good low single digit. Uh, kind of good. My from a career standpoint, I'm kind of on my third career now. Uh, so on a pretty big scale, my first career was really in the nonprofit ministry kind of world, and then my second career was more business consulting world, project management stuff and leadership development and all that. Um, and now my third career would be doing what I'm doing now in the golf space. But the common thread in the whole story from the beginning till now is that I've always found a passion and a love for mentoring, coaching, developing, especially young people, whether that was kind of in the nonprofit ministry context. I've had a lot of experience with in the uh, music world, mentoring and coaching young people. And that levels of performance. When I was business consulting, there was a lot of leadership development and trying to really raise up young leaders. And that really is how I got into what I do now. I was working with a college as a consultant, a university in in Georgia. And through that work with the president of that college, I got to know several of the coaches in their athletic department, started meeting with some of them. They were young, developing families, kind of late, mid-20s, late 20s, early 30s. And through our relationships, they would ask me if I would sit down with a player on their team because they felt like I might be able to help a player who was struggling with something. And it all just kind of started organically happening with a friend who was a golf coach, another friend who was a tennis coach, and another friend who was a baseball coach. And it uh, the baseball coach was actually at a different school, but just just these relationships. And it, it was just pretty organic trying to help young people deal with a lot of life stuff that was affecting their performance. You know, uh, I, I remember one that stands out 
big as a kid whose brother had committed suicide the summer while he was home coming back for his second year of college he's just trying to figure all that out and all of a sudden season starts and he's got to try to start playing Um, but just a lot of that performance anxiety kind of stuff people not performing well when they would get into postseason or national championship caliber stuff and that just really started organically emerging doing workshops with teams and on performance and mental side of stuff and eventually this was all i was just doing all this as a hobby i started meeting with different players different college teams and eventually emerged into a part-time job and then pretty quickly into a full-time job and now i just isolated golf after about probably about four years ago i just became 100 percent with golf because it's where most of my passion is at and what i feel like i enjoy the most when it came to picking up your first students in golf what was that transition like you know you've been working mentoring people on more you know bigger picture problems and what i would probably call on a relative scale bigger problems to the problem of hitting a white ball around a field it's a good question i I think where and maybe this a little bit of what i bring that's a little unique is that i I just came at it from the very beginning that athletics and golf included is primarily an endeavor where normal human stuff always rises to the surface. Like you're, you're, you're always dealing with things either being the way you want them to be or not the way you want them to be. You're always dealing with disappointments, mistakes, bouncing back. Can I live with mistakes or do I just, you know, exaggerate mistakes and slide into a disaster mode? Even that basic core, part of why I love golf is golf forces us at every level, but especially the competitive higher levels, you're going to deal with yourself out there and whatever your relationship with yourself is, it is literally going to be front and center and you can't get away from it and you can't hide it and it will directly affect how you perform. And just that part is what I, I've been doing that my whole life with people. I've been trying to help people navigate life's up and downs, build personal skills and learn how to uh, relate to the things that are going on in their life. Other people, obviously, but also just dealing with their own insecurities, their own habits, their relationship with emotions versus the rational side, their ability to make decisions, take chances or play it safe, you know, all of that stuff. And golf, you know, everybody said this for forever. Golf is reflective of life. I just sort of built a coaching career around that. So I really come at coaching much more from the person, even though I'm very golf centric and have learned to really translate a lot of that to very specific performance stuff. It's still, I, I feel like I have a pretty good idea of how we as people operate psychologically, relationally, emotionally, motivationally, and all that stuff. And I just try to help golfers make sense out of the confusion that they're going through and find a path forward towards the things that they want to try to achieve. So that's really where I, it started and it still lives there. I've 
you know, I've learned a lot. I've researched a lot. I've been educated. I have a master's degree in transformation and change and how we as people, especially really make changes in deep seated habits. All of that is super helpful to me, but nothing beats thousands of hours setting, talking with golfers who succeed and golfers who don't most of the time they don't because that's the game and talking to coaches, college coaches and other instructors and just really pulling up the hood and figuring out how it works underneath the hood and help golfers navigate all that. So uh, it's kind of a long answer. I hope that uh, hit hit where you were going, Daniel. It did. One of the things you mentioned right there is that the golfer, as far as things beyond actual golf, that's really what comes out on the course. Could you dive in a little deeper to that? Give us maybe some examples. Because if I'm listening, I'm not saying this the way it is, but if I'm listening, like, okay, is that like a, it's almost 40 and two degree in the sense, not in the sense is exactly what he focused on, but really what we're seeing manifest itself on the golf course is indicative of past events or something revolving around that. Tell us what that means in like practicality. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, obviously it's different for different people. Uh, some people, what is literally going on in their life before they step on the golf course off the golf course is either really draining their mental and emotional tanks and they get on the golf course. They are much quicker to agitation, much quicker to reactive, even more than they are normally. So when that starts to amp up, I had a long conversation two days ago with one of my junior golfers who just had, for him, a very unusual thing happen in a tournament. And he just, it was so out of the ordinary that we have to go into what's going on outside of the golf course. Like, and there is a lot that's going on. And it was just a... In his mind, it had nothing to do with the golf. In my mind, it had everything to do with his ability to be disciplined, to invest mental energy in the shot in front of him, to push aside the temptation to get too caught up in score and leaderboard and yesterday's shot on the 12th hole and what am I going to hit today to you know, offset that water shot I hit yesterday. Like he's just living, he's just way, that takes a lot of energy to, to really like keep yourself in a, what I would call a focus bubble in executing golf shots. And because he was so empty to start with that like went real fast. And then every little mistake was super exaggerated and reactive. So Sometimes that really is what happens. Uh, I think the best players and even the best players I work with are pretty good at compartmentalizing. Like when they get to the golf course and I even try to help them, you know, create a time later that you're going to work on something that you're trying to solve in your head or a relational conflict you have or something going on at a class. If you're a college player or something going on back home, like create a, a system to where you can put that in a bucket and it'll be there when you need to get to it so that when you step on the golf course for these, you know, five hours or probably six hours with warm up and all that kind of stuff, 
you can actually invest in what you're doing and keep telling yourself, yep, I'm going to get to that. I've got a spot for that. I'll get to that when I get to it. So that you're at least trying during that time to make as to make those hours as golf centric as possible. And then it's about, like I said, how good, how good can you be in creating that bubble around the shot you're playing, what you can control to execute the shot you're playing from a stress control standpoint, from a focus in lock-in standpoint. And then how well can you relax between shots? How well can you then keep aside, pushing aside all the, like what I like to call window dressing of tournament golf that really doesn't have anything to do with hitting golf balls. It has everything to do with what it means and how important it is and who's thinking what and what does it earn me and where do I stack up and how will this feel when I finish the round if I have to sign a scorecard for this score and you know, all of that stuff is what tournament golf starts to just overwhelm golfers with. And that's really sort of unique, I think, to the tournament competitive space more than any other kind of golf. When you first start working with a player, what is your process to get to know them and get that kind of holistic view of them so that you can start to work on some of those things? Yeah, it's a great question. We do a little bit of background. There's, you know, for competitive golfers, there's resources where you can see what kind of scores they're shooting, what kind of tournaments they're playing, where they're finishing. We do we do that over the course of the last year. So we kind of try to see what are there any trends going on here? Are first rounds way different than second rounds? Are last rounds way different than early rounds? What you know, how's all that playing? So we try to get a little bit of what I would call quantitative you know data on them as a golfer i usually if they're a junior golfer and sometimes if they're a college golfer i'll get some info from the parents about their perspective i often will do a call before we ever commit to working together we always do a sort of get to know each other conversation and there's good amount of questions that are asked in that so trying to get some backstory I enter the golfers I work with. I, I've created a structure where they enter into the work with me, no matter whether they're junior golfers, college golfers, or playing professionally. They start with me in what I call a phase one and then phase two mental game core fundamentals program. And those are five coaching sessions. Each phase one is five sessions. Phase two is five sessions. And they're really focused on four core fundamentals of the mental game. But what, and they know that before they sign up, that's all part of what our agreement is. Here's what we're going to work on for these first five weeks. And then session one is mostly a lot of me asking them questions about their history with golf, how they got started in it, whether they've, whether their trajectory has always been on the up, whether they've been chasing better players, whether they've been the better players, whether they where that what their club situation is like, how their relationship with instruction, swing instructors, have they stuck had the same coach they've been bouncing around? When did they feel like they were good? When did they, you know, did they play other sports growing up? Like we just do a pretty comprehensive thing on that. And I try to really get them to talk a lot about what they think they're doing when they're on the golf course playing their best. And what it feels like to them, what thoughts they recognize they have and all that. And then what they feel like is happening on the golf course when they're not, when they're really struggling. 
and what's happening with them. And a lot of times that connects with, you know, in the early conversations, there's stuff about family and parents and who got you in the game and who's had the most influence on you and who, who takes you to tournaments and who signs you up. And, you know, I'm trying to get a, a, a little bit of picture of what their family's backgrounds like, what their golf influences are like, whether or not they really love golf or do they love just being good because they've been good their whole life and that's what they really love the most or do they love golf because somebody else told them to love golf and that's never really transitioned for them so i'm trying to become a better listener and question asker and then all throughout those early those ses- those first phase one and phase two sessions i'm introducing them to some core concepts and we're walking through framework that i use with everybody i work with but I'm asking them a lot of follow-up to what I learned in session one, trying to get them to continue to talk about their tendencies within the context of the, the content that I'm using. So it, it, is, it is a mix of content-driven because I think there's some fundamental things that we have to get on the same page with and they have to develop some skills at. But I'm going to really try to direct that towards their experiences and their things that are important to them and things that they already feel like they struggle with. I'm going to try to use those as the entry points to help things make sense to them and help them feel like I'm addressing the stuff that they are most felt need kind of front of mind. What are some of those fundamentals that you try to instill in your players? Yeah, good. We start start in phase one with Uh, Focus control is the very first topic that we talk about and just trying to define what is good focus. I call, I talk about focus as mental energy investment or fuel, mental fuel investment. And I break down into three different circles of things that golfers can expend a lot of mental fuel on, can rent space between their ears when they're in a tournament. And those are a varying levels of from things you have no control over at all, you can't change at all, to things you have a lot of influence over, but you can't fully control, the things you actually can learn to control a lot. And then we start, we progress from there into how, what are the skills to accept and adapt to things we can't really control, but they're a big, they're part of tournament golf. And then how do we invest better in the things we can control so that our influence tends to go up on our performance? So we talk, we work on focus control. Then we really do work on mental pre-shot routine next. Some people come to me and they are pretty good at that already. Some people come to me and that they, they're, they think they're good at that, but they really don't know how to do that. Um, they know how to do the physical part of a pre-shot routine, but they don't know mentally how to how to manage and guide and sequence their thoughts and their attention, their concentration. Um, so we build that. We do a live driving range session where I'm on on I'm on their phone watching them hit balls, and I'm in their ears through headphones, and we're working pre-shot routine stuff and personalizing it for them a little bit. We do all that during phase one. In phase two, we focus on what I call stress control, which is really not stress in just the anxiety way, but stress in just the elevated, amped up adrenaline kind of way. 
that tournament golf is always throwing at you and learning how to use that and manage that better and then we the fourth topic we focus on is some basic course management decision making kind of stuff when do you go at flags on approach shots when do you not a little bit of decade kind of golf kind of uh information a lot of statistical stuff where i'm trying to open their mind to like what what i what i call it golf reality like this is golf reality this is a good shot this is a great shot and usually your definition of a good shot and a great shot isn't anywhere near reality. So it's just trying to educate them on some of that and help them then have some knowledge of how to make decisions on the course. It's pretty introductory level, but it's concepts that tend to really help the golfers. So those are the first four things that we really go after. And that's what I kind of call my tier. That's like the tier three group is people who are migrating through those phases. And then I have another whole group of golfers who've done that and they go on to what we call ongoing development work. And that's much more personalized for them. We're breaking down tournaments. We're prepping for tournaments. We're looking at scorecards going hole by hole after tournaments are over. We're looking for trends, habits, struggles, difficulties, ways that they're being influenced on the golf course. And then I have a, that's my kind of tier two group. And then I have my tier one group is a I call them partnership golfers, and that's a group of about 20 or 25 that I'm very I've coached them typically for a long time. I'm very involved in their golf, oftentimes very involved in their life, very connected with their families, lots of phone calls at tournaments and very access. I'm accessible to them a lot through texting and phone calls and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of how I migrate entry to introductory allows me to really get to know them them to get to know me and then we figure out if these further steps make sense for how we're connecting or not connecting you talked about pre-shot routine right there and working with kids through a good pre-shot routine helping them customize it what is what is the essence of a good pre-shot routine and how does that vary between players yeah, I think the framework can work across different levels. I think a pre-shot routine mentally needs to be thought of like a recipe, like you would be cooking food. There's like step one, step two, because it's a very controllable skill. And the more under pressurized tournament environments or when things start to spin or when things really amp up, the more you can go into controllable spaces, the more it tends to calm the whole system down and allow you to execute skills better. So I use a pretty simple three-step framework. It's, you know, I, I, I would say I adapted this from a variety of resources, the Vision 54 people. I did some training with them early on, really love their think box, play box, memory box, all those kind of ideas. But just personalizing it for the way I felt like it made sense to the golfers I was explaining to. So the three steps I worked them through is how to create a clear intention. We start with intention and a clear intention. We define what that means. We even go through some structure of decision making, picking targets. How do you visualize shots? How do you make that those decisions clear? How do you use trouble as information during that intention part? 
so that once we use the information, we check it off, we've used it, we've adapted our yardage. If there's water short, we've used that information. And then we try to say, once we've created the intention, we're done with the information that we were thinking that through on. We take that intention into what I call focused rehearsals. So typically practice swings or practice swings. I think it's a I think it's a risky part of the pre-shot routine because I think a lot of golfers take practice swings that are either meaningless, like they're just moving the club around, or they get start to get lost in technical, mechanical. And I would like the golfers I work with to create the intention clearly first and then to feel, focus their rehearsals in a connected way to the intention they've created. And then to third step, walk in the shot set up and commit to the shot in a very clear, simple, almost non-thinking kind of way, just much more of an attitude of attack that target kind of way. Tiger Woods aggressive to my spots kind of idea. So intention, focus, commitment are the structures we work with. And then the personalization has a lot to do with that golfer some golfers are more technical so we work with intention and focus to really help use that technical in a productive way to get them over the ball committed to the shot other golfers are much more feel athletic just reactive to targets and seeing shots and all that and so we're trying to elevate that sort of dimension of their golf to free them up more. What tends to get mixed is I've got a lot of really good athletes who grew up playing lots of sports and they were very good, great, what would classically be called hand-eye coordination. I like to call it eye-body coordination is what athleticism is in my world. But they get over the ball and they lose that whole ability because they are trying to just play golf by straight lines. My toes are lined, the club's lined, my swing's creating perfect perfectness in the ball. It's supposed to go where it wants, but they've lost, they're not using any of that sort of superpower they've had their whole life to really react to what their eyes are seeing they want shots to do. So those kind of players, I typically can help them create a better intention step one step two so that over the ball they're more freed up in what they're doing so that's where we get into the personalization stuff but the framework i think is helpful because when golfers are playing really good they don't have to think in any kind of pre-shot framework and they and i try to help them not think when I call that a game golf or heater golf, like when you're on that, there's a version of you, you just need to let ride. And the worst thing you can do is start overthinking what you're doing, but then there's a B game, C game version of your golf. And you better know how to like take control of some things when you get into B and C game. And if you just keep trying to do what you do when you're playing a game, you're just asking for a disaster. It, it goes bad. So it's it's a it's a very nuanced kind of thing within the context of a framework. What do you tell golfers to do when, you know, they go through the process, they have this intention, they make this practice swing to the intention to the intention, and then that practice swing for X, Y, or Z doesn't feel right or like I don't know if that practice swing actually accomplished 
my intention? What do you tell them to do? Yeah, it's a great, that's a great question and uh, happens a lot. And a lot of golfers, when they first come to me, they are in that mode. I take as many practice swings as I need till I feel right. Well, when we get under tournament environments in certain situations, you might need a hundred. Like you, like <laughs> there is, there's no, in, there's an infinite amount because the feeling is very mystical and sort of something you're trying to convince yourself of. What I work with golfers on is trying to build precision and consistency so that you like the, I call it flow, and I don't necessarily mean what my friend Rick Sessinghouse means with flow code. He's talking more, more about being in the zone and all that. I, what I, talk, what I, I use the word a lot, I call it rhythm, pace, tempo, flow. It's more like, let's create a pre-shot routine that for has your has Daniel or Cooper's version of like the intro to a song where it's the same length and same pace and same timing each time. And what you're building your comfort around, what you build your feels around is the familiarity of that rhythm and pace so that when you step up to the ball, you literally are in your timing. You're in your rhythm. With my better players, we work a lot. I was I work with three different college teams and my last two visits to the college programs we spent a lot of time on the driving range, literally just timing walk-ins from behind the ball, setting up, taking your looks, pulling the trigger. Like how long from the time your foot moves on the walk-in till the ball leaves? Because that's your rhythm. That's your space. And that's also an attempt to, uh, to get out of the standing at some point in over starting to overthink or staring at the ball too long and sort of stalling out or just going so quick that you're not in any kind of rhythm and pace. So there's a lot of personalization to it, but it also is trying to help them build something that stands up when tension and pressure goes up. And that idea of just, I take however many practice swings I want till I feel right is just impossible to pull off under tournament pressure. So I like to try to help golfers create. I feel right when I take two. That's more where I want to see them go. When it comes to helping golfers who have performance anxiety or just anxiety in general, how much how much do you think it is about having all your priorities straightened out prior to the event, having all your preparation ready and how much of it do you think is kind of just being okay with the chaos of a tournament round? Yeah, that's a great question that would only come from a guy who's been there. (laughs) (laughs) For sure, especially especially with college golf and everything. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I totally see it. So I, I think it's never a satisfying answer if you want me to give like percentages or something, but it is a real mix of both. So there is, I, I just last week I was working with a guy on one of the three college division one teams that I work with as a team. And this is exactly the issue. He's very good, very, very good. But man, that first tee thing and getting off to the start and the whole leading up to that first shot, just a lot of performance anxiety around that. So 
we really we go after it on two fronts. We go after it on creating a, in a sense, creating a practice plan on the days leading up that puts you in as much familiarity as you will be try to create when you get there. So a lot of how you're pacing, you're walking, how you're controlling your breathing, a lot of those sort of tangible things. What are you telling yourself? What are what I call reminders and behaviors, kind of a mix of things you're reminding yourself of and then things you're physically doing. So we kind of go after it and prepare that way. Then we kind of come after it from more of a mindset standpoint. What is the heightened adrenaline actually about? Is it about the fact that I'm terrified of screwing this up and choking and bombing and this going terrible? Or is it about I'm really excited about this because this is what I work so hard for and this is what I love doing and this is why I'm playing golf. And so we try to create a perspective, a framework on the feelings he's got in his body, but what they mean. And I I just I call it excessive energy. Your body's creating excessive energy. And that energy can either be harnessed and channeled for focus execution or that energy can actually drag you away to where there is no focus and execution. So we work on a combination of preparation, mental understanding of what's happening with me and how I can use that. And, and then there is the actual execution, the tools on the golf course. And so that's a lot of, you know, he just had, he has to experience it with the things we worked on to prep. And then we come back next time and I'm trying to figure out what, okay, what are you experiencing? What feels like it's helping and how can we keep pushing down the road that you're on? Fortunately for this guy. Yeah. He, it, some stuff clicked pretty quick because he, he won recently. So, (laughs) And, and that's not always the barometer, but you know, it's, it's good, good to win when you're playing golf. So when it works, it works. When it comes to working with players, at a high level, what do you see as far as players having what I what some people might refer to as ceilings or playing the best that they can play at a given time under a given set of circumstances? So specifically, how can you tell whether a player is, and it's dangerous to say this, maxing out their potential at a given time? Yeah, boy, that's that's. That's my goal, honestly, from a golf standpoint. I, I we're always pursuing this elusive ceiling, this elusive potential. I don't know for sure that we ever know for sure. I just think there's a lot of different angles that we could look at that allow us to to have the best educated guess we can on that. And then even to figure out, is that all there is in the tank? Like we might have maxed out where they are right now, but doesn't mean that that is static and can't progress and change. So I would look at, you know, I think there really is a golf technical side and our and all the body movement stuff and all the conditioning and all of what we now know in that space in golf that we can test and we can evaluate and speed and strength and quickness and all those things. I think there's that physical side. It's not my space, but 
I appreciate it and love it, have good friends working in that space. And then there's more where my space is at, and that is more how are we thinking, how are we making decisions, how are we managing our stress? I would break that a little more into, I think every round of golf has golf mistakes because the game is not, as Bob Rotella wrote years ago, the game's not perfect and it's never going to be. You're never going to get every shot out of your round. You're always going to walk off the last green feeling like there were one or two that could have been better, but that's the game. So there's golf mistakes and I'm trying to get players to accept those and not exaggerate those or create bigger problems around that reality. But then there's avoidable mistakes and avoidable mistakes are the ones we're trying to poke into. Avoidable mistakes are decisions. They are, I allowed my body to get going too fast. I did not manage my tempo, my pace while I was walking, while I was, you know, pegging the ball on the tee, or if that's, if your tendency is the opposite, I started going too slow. I started stalling out. I started getting tentative, hesitant. I think, I think there's avoidable mistakes often fall on continuums, either on the aggressive sort of reckless extreme or sort of on the careful, tentative extreme. And I don't think either extreme is the ultimate goal for you. So it's, again, once we know those tendencies, we can start navigating how well golfers are doing with that, try to build skills to offset that. And when they are doing very, very well on that, yeah, we're getting closer to maxing, to maxing out. But then I would start even at that point, I would start pushing into, okay, we're maxing out the current set of skills, physical skills, mental skills. What are the next ones that we don't have right now? And that's almost always on, you know, that same continuum for my more tentative, careful golfers. They just do not have the makeup to go low, to be comfortable in the space of being under par early in round. Like there's just a much more manageable risk side that they've got to let themselves play into. And then for my more aggressive, reckless golfers, they, they are so in that space that, and they're usually great when they're really hot, but they're, they do not struggle as well as they could from a scoring standpoint. So because there's always going to be a mix of what I would call a game, B game and C game, always going to be a mix which one of these do we need to elevate and how do we build the skills so that you can elevate that more i just think that's an in, almost an endless path even if we feel like we've maxed out where they currently are i'd like to talk a little bit about one of the players that you've been working with recently jake peacock he as far as i know he wasn't you know, highly recruited by SEC schools. He went to Western Carolina, since then transferred, but he's become a really elite amateur player winning the Georgia Amateur this summer. So just talk about some of the things that you guys have worked on to get him to that point. Yeah, very proud of Jake and love him. His family is very special to me. Met Jake a little over about almost four and a half years ago now. He was in his junior golf days. 
when I first met him, he was, uh, I actually met him at a golf tournament. I was working with a player he was paired with at a junior tournament. And it was actually the junior AM in, in Savannah. And Jake was very talented once the ball left the club. <laughs> like getting that to happen was not going well. Like he was, um, he was struggling a lot with, a lot of distractions, things getting in his way, kind of glitches in the way he was preparing to hit shots. And so we met Jake, met his family. They hired me. And Jake and I started initially just tackling a pre-shot routine that had better rhythm and tempo and flow. What I recognized about Jake right at the beginning, even while I was watching him, was he had a little bit of a superpower that was misdirected. So like the superpower was he had an insane ability to focus and concentrate, but it was on the wrong things. And it was an attempt to sort of perfect things that really weren't that important right before he would hit the shot, like what the grass was like, what the, you know, what things around the ball were like, like all these sort of things. So it was just this great ability, but it was just a little misdirected. And so we just started in, in kind of step one at harnessing. I didn't come to Jake with a, you got a whole bunch of big problems. We got to fix them. I came to Jake with, you got a superpower, man. It is unbelievable what you're able to do. Now let's get that going forward and not sideways and backwards. And we started building flow. That was the first word Jake and I started working on. Let's build some flow to where as you progress forward, you keep your mind and that you keep that superpower moving to the next thing, not the last thing or previous things. And he played very good. Part of what helped things in my, for me personally, was Jake, right after I started working with him, he went to the Georgia AM at Atlanta Athletic Club in 2020. And on the final day, he was he hadn't started his senior year in high school yet. He made the cut almost on the number, maybe a couple under the number. And and then on the final day, moved from like 43rd to 6th. And it was a really bad weather day at Atlanta Athletic Club. And Jake beat the field scoring average by over 10 strokes in the final round. And that started getting some like, wow, what? And a lot of people knew, knew Jake, knew him from junior golf. So that that was kind of his first big move. And then we worked hard on continuing to to smooth things out, keep his focus working for him, his concentration. Jake had from the very beginning and still to this day has some incredible skills golf wise. Yes. But beyond that, he has skills at when Jake understands concepts, those concepts become performance faster than anybody I've ever met. It's just almost like once something locks in, he goes to performance of that thing really, really fast. He, like I said, has an amazing ability to concentrate when he's using it correctly. He also is one of the most inherently positive and confident people I've ever been around. So when those things are all aligned and working in the right direction and his golf skills are high, then things start to click and he had a 
amazing run his last year of junior golf went from i i mean i've got this somewhere but went from 900 and something in the country to eighth before he finished his last junior golf tournament or after he finished his last junior golf tournament good year at western kentucky or western carolina and at uh, south florida very good but the last six or eight months some things have really started aligning some golf skill stuff the south florida coaches were very tuned into that needed to get better and then some just sort of next level mental skills that he's now just been repeating and the georgia am was where it all sort of came together and it worked but he's just continued to really carry that through i'm very proud of him just finished second in a tournament this week had a teammate win and the team won which was cool because i worked with the whole team but jake went 47 holes to start the tournament at 15 under with no bogeys so little stumble coming down the stretch but 47 holes with not a bogey at 15 under that had never been thought of in my mind <laughs> so he's constantly blowing my mind and uh i think i think the sky's the limit for him i'm with you i've been impressed at what i've seen i don't follow jake much but i follow a lot of the tournaments going on both in georgia and across the u.s and in college and one of the things that stuck out and even at our club because he's out at golf club at georgia and he won the club championship this year i think shooting 15 under over three days which is pretty pretty darn good out at that course yeah. uh there are colleges the college tournament was out there and it was set up a little bit differently but uh the georgia intercollegiate was out there and i don't think anybody got to that so he can he can hit the ball around he can hit it a mile and something you talked about is that i want to go back to is a he he can go low but b you talked about players who are tentative struggle to go low or can struggle to feel comfortable there when it comes to players going low or feeling comfortable going low what do you do to fix that problem because for the players who you say are reckless and can play really well get comfortable there it's more about on the B and C days, it sounds like reducing bogeys and double bogeys. But for players who don't, who have the the quote unquote A days, but don't get there with it, how do you solve that problem? It's a great question. It's a hard thing to do. It's actually easier progressively developmentally. It's easier the other way. When you got guys that can go deep and you teach them how to play on their struggling days, that, that actually is an easier path. But it doesn't mean it doesn't, it can't happen. It, it, it can. And what I tend to do, try to do is, so if they're able, the question usually is they have the ability to make birdies. They get three or four under through seven or eight holes, like they're having a day, and then things change. And so what we're really trying to attack is okay once you get to an uncomfortable under par place what is your tendency from a aggressive tentative spectrum so if it's reckless then that's a different skill path if it's 
scared, hold onto the steering wheel, try to get this in the house. Wow, a 60, 68 would be really nice today. And I've got 12 holes left. Like that's if that's the path I'm going down, then it we have to begin to address a little more of the freedom, you know, giving yourself a chance and believing in yourself and taking a little more chances. But overall, what I try to do with golfers on either end of that spectrum is I try to help them frame that point in the round as you're you're playing so well, you're aware that you're playing so well at that moment. And that, that, and that turning point might happen multiple times before you get it back to the clubhouse. But you either will allow your score or potential score to start renting bigger space in your head. And now you're playing golf shots to score or to manipulate score. And that's probably not how you got there. You got there because you're just feeling good. You're relaxed. You're focused. You either at that sort of crossroads, you will either score will become the more dominant thing or the the vibe, the juice, the feeling that you feel, how good you feel becomes an increasingly dominant thing. So it's almost like each shot becomes, I can't wait. I'm almost curious to see how good this putt's going to be. Like, let's see what this drive does. It almost, it's like, we call that momentum, but it's, it's taking that vibe that I got to this place with. And that's what I start utilizing as fuel and influence as opposed to score and perceived score and an emotional attachment to perceived score becoming the fuel that I'm now trying to manipulate around as I'm playing a golf shot. And I don't know that they would ever say it that way, but the players I have, Jake, we've already named Jake as fearless of going low. Like that is, I think, I know at one point he had or tied the course record at your club back before he finished junior golf. And that's the club, but I think Georgia tech plays out of that club all the time. So he's not afraid of that side. Like that side was always there, but I think what he does, he wouldn't say it this way, but what I think he does is he's just good at the vibe of being super hot, like the feeling, the juice, and taking that forward almost in like a curiosity kind of way, not in a like controlling kind of way, almost like a, mm, let's just do another one. Let's do another one. Let's do another one. Okay. 30 footer. I'm, I mean, this has a chance to go into like, I'm like scaring the hole all day long. Like it's always just, everything is just, oh man, let's see, let's see, let's see. That's where I'm trying to get golfers better at depending on where they're at in that space. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that is very unique and it's fun to get that breakdown on how to feel more comfortable going low. I know we're kind of coming up on time here, so we'll kind of, we'll proceed to our last question. We ask every golfer and for you, it's going to be a two-parter and I know you didn't take up junior golf, so you can, address yourself back when you were in your twenties. But if you could go back, the first part is if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that be? And number two is if you could tell a junior golfer, just one thing, what would that one thing be? 
Yeah, I think for me, it, whether it was golf or other sports, early on it was basketball, and it'd be the same thing. Like, I would tell myself, um, you cannot succeed in this sport at the level you're capable of succeeding at if you don't untie your sense of identity and value from the points you put up or the score you write on the card or like that that sort of attachment to how i felt about myself was just insanely limiting because the games are not designed to carry that kind of weight and so i would i would tell myself that and i would try to encourage myself to find paths forward on that so that there's something stronger at the core of my life than just the score or the performance. I think what I would tell junior golfers, obviously I would want them that, to go down that path, but that's pretty hard entry point message. Like you don't, you don't <laughs> get very far <laughs> when you start with that kind of, when you lead with that kind of stuff. So I would probably go a little more down the path of if you could get better at managing small perspective at the right times and bigger perspective at the right times, it would really make a massive difference for you. So smaller perspective when I'm needing to execute skills and then bigger perspective after those skills have been executed to where I'm not making the result or the outcome or the score be everything there is that I'm on a bigger journey. I'm learning, I'm growing. This is just one point along the way. And that's something I'm always talking with junior golfers about when we're looking at scorecards and looking at tournaments and looking at holes. How does this fit with the bigger goals we have for your golf, the bigger things you want to become in the game? And that's bigger. I'm trying to always give them a bigger perspective on nothing's ruined in one specific moment. Nothing's ruined with one tee shot. Nothing's ruined with one nine holes. Like, so it's, I think we tend to have big perspective when we're trying to execute a skill we're thinking too much about what this means and how important this is and all that we sort of do it backwards and then we get we get very narrow perspective on the result and the outcome and it becomes catastrophic or you know all of a sudden yeah if we succeed in one it becomes like this new standard that we're going to supposedly do every day so I think it has I, I would try to encourage golfers to man if you can figure out how to manage your narrow perspective focus versus your big perspective focus it would really change your path going forward brilliant we appreciate you joining us if people want to find you on social media or reach out to you where can they do that yeah i have a website philshomocoaching.com p-h-i-l-s-h-o-m-o.com or coaching.com and then i'm on instagram philshomocoaching that's the main platform for social. I don't really do uh, other platforms, but try to try to put good good content out there on Instagram and uh, connect with people as much as I can in that space. Sweet. Be sure to check, fill out. And then if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave a rating. If you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This helps us get our message out to more people, help more people get better at tournament golf. 
And if you're trying to find us on Instagram, you can find us there at the tournament code and on X slash Twitter tournament code. As always, we appreciate you joining us and look forward to diving in deeper what it takes to play elite tournament golf.